All right. Well, good morning, everybody. I think we'll go ahead and get started. I got a lot of notes to go through, so if we want to... <laughs> like we're a little little light this morning. Couldn't have anything to do with the time change, could it? I don't know. It always seems like that. This is the time change that I like the most because I like it being lighter later at night. I'm not a morning person, so I don't mind it being darker in the morning. But um, yeah, but it's the one where you lose, lose the sleep over the weekend, so that's not a good thing. So, All right, let's, let's open up a word of prayer this morning and we'll get into our study. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, we thank you, Lord, for the day that you've given us and for uh, this opportunity that we have to study your word. I just pray, Lord, that you'd be with us as we, as we worship you, Lord, as we, as we hear your word, as we uh, dig into the depths of Daniel this morning. And Lord, we just thank you for the, the truths that you've provided for us here. Just pray, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would give us understanding, and pray, Lord, that uh, this would be a time that would bring glory and honor to you. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Continuing our study in Daniel chapter 2 this morning, we're looking at the first dream that we have recorded of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has been given a dream by God, a dream that will prove to be so key, so essential in the realm of biblical prophecy that really it's doubtful that we would be able to have a complete understanding um, about God's future plans for both Israel and the church and the nations without it. This Gentile king of Babylon, um, king of the kingdom of Babylon, a land that throughout time has become synonymous with pagan religious systems, is the one that's receiving this dream from God. You have to ask yourself, why does God use this man? Why does God use this, this godless man from this godless place to reveal such important biblical truths? Why would God use a man who worshipped his own idols, who would someday have an idol erected of himself so that others could worship it, in essence, worship him? Why is this man chosen to receive such an important prophetic dream? The answer is because at this point in time, the world was at the beginning of the period in which God would turn his attention away from the nation of Israel, and what better way to illustrate that than in this fashion? What better way to illustrate that than to reveal prophetic events through those who had been given authority over the nation of Israel? God had given the nation of Israel, um, nation of Judah, into the hands of the king of Babylon. You can see that in, uh, back in chapter 1, verse 2. And remember, the northern kingdom of Israel had been taken captive many years before that. Judah, at this point in time, was all that was left. God, in his sovereign plan, had allowed Judah to be conquered and taken into captivity by Babylon, and it was a slow process that took place over the course of 20 years. They had been given over to the Babylonians into captivity, which will end up lasting for the next 70 years. But even after that time, they will not gain their complete independence. They will simply be allowed to return to Jerusalem. And the time that we're looking at right now in our study with Daniel and the events that are taking place here is the beginning of the Gentile influence over the nation of Israel. This is the beginning of the period known as the times of the Gentiles. 
a period of history where the Gentile nations have authority and dominance over the nation of Israel. And this period will stretch from this point that we're seeing here in Daniel all the way until the point in time when Jesus Christ, the Messiah, returns to earth again. Why is this stuff about Jews and Gentiles important for us to know and understand? Why should we care about this? Because everyone in the world falls into one of two categories, Jew or Gentile. And unless you are a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then God's plans concerning the Gentile nations has particular relevance for you. We need to understand what God's plan is. We need to understand how he is accomplishing it in order to understand what is going on today. Because having a firm understanding of what is going on today gives us insight into what God has planned for tomorrow. These events that we're going to see in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, combined with the other prophecies that we will see later on in this book, are going to help flesh out the picture of the future events that God has planned for the Gentile nations, as well as for the nation of Israel. The church is not the nation of Israel. Let me say that again. The church is not the nation of Israel. It is not the new nation of Israel. It is not the replacement for the nation of Israel. The church is an assembly of believers comprised primarily of Gentiles. That God has turned his attention turned his attention toward in this time when he has turned his attention away from the nation of Israel. Now why do I stress this? It's because there are plenty of people out there that would claim that the church has replaced Israel. Or that the church is the new Israel. And that every prophecy that at one time was directed towards Israel, we should now take and say, that doesn't apply to Israel anymore, that applies to the church instead. But that's not the proper interpretation of Scripture. I mentioned earlier the times of the Gentiles, a period of time that Jesus referred to when he said in Luke chapter 21, uh, verse 24, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. The church is a product of this time. The church um, is a product of this time in history in God's plan when discipline has been imposed by God upon the nation of Israel as he has turned his attention away from them and allowed them to suffer persecution. As a part of this time, as a part of this judgment upon them, the church has received blessings from God. Now, the truth of this is clearly seen in the 11th chapter of the book of Romans, and if we had time, I would take you there, but but we don't. Um, But I'll just say a few things about that chapter. If you wanted to turn there, there's a couple verses I'll reference here. but. But in Romans 11, verse 11, Paul says that Israel didn't stumble so as to fall. In other words, they did not sin so gravely that God cast them out completely. They did not lose their place as the people of his chosen nation. But he goes on to say that salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to make them, the Jews, jealous. Earlier in Romans chapter 1, Paul alluded to this when he said in verse 16 of Romans chapter 1, a verse that we're probably very familiar with, that salvation has come to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the Greek being another reference to Gentiles. Christ came to his own. He came to the nation of Israel. He was born as a Jew, and salvation was offered to Israel first. 
After his resurrection, the gospel is preached only to Jews up until Acts chapter 10. When Peter then goes to the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, a Gentile, and he presents the gospel there, and, and Cornelius and his household are, are saved. And you can read about that account in Acts chapter 10, 17, through Acts chapter 11, verse 18, the end of which the apostles in Jerusalem glorify God when they realize in Acts eleven eighteen God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. This was previously unheard of for them, but from that point on, the gospel is primarily taken to the Gentiles. As we said earlier, as, as Paul said in Romans 11, 11, it was to make the Jews jealous. In verse 25 of Romans 11, Paul says this, and I'll just read a couple of verses here. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And this is where this is all leading. The end result is going to be the salvation of the nation of Israel. When ungodliness is removed from them, when their sins are taken away. This happens when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When God is finished working with the Gentiles, when he has accomplished through them, through us, all that he plans to accomplish, he will then turn his attention back to the nation of Israel, his own sovereignly chosen nation. As believers, we have been chosen by God. We are God's people as the church, as individuals, but we are not his chosen nation. That distinction belongs to Israel alone. And in God's plan, in order to discipline his chosen nation for their unbelief and their unfaithfulness, he has chosen to turn his attention to the Gentiles, the people in every other nation than Israel. This is the time that we're in now. This is the time that began with the captivity of Daniel and his companions back in 605 B.C. These are tremendous Tremendous truths that we are studying here in Daniel. These things that we see here carry on even to today. They have relevance for us today. And I hope that we don't miss that when we study Daniel. I hope that we don't dismiss this book as just Old Testament stories about lion's dens and fiery furnaces and gold statues. Those things are there, but that's not all that's there. Because if we just think of those things, we miss out on the intricate details of God's marvelous plan for human history. So now that I've ranted about that long enough, let's, let's get into our text and see these truths as God presented them about 3,000 years ago. Let me just recap what we saw in the first 27 verses of Daniel chapter 2. Okay? In the beginning of the chapter, we saw that King Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream, a dream so troubling to him that he woke up from his sleep and had to call in his wise men to interpret it for him. And not just to interpret the dream, but they had to tell him what the dream was in the first place. The king had forgotten his own dream, only they couldn't do this. So since they couldn't do this, Nebuchadnezzar calls for all of the wise men to be slain, torn limb from limb, their houses turned into rubbish heaps, which caused Arioch, the captain of the bodyguard, to go out and seek all the wise men, and he finds Daniel and his friends because they were part of that group. Daniel asks, for time, he asks Arioch, he goes in and sees the king. He asks the king for time, and he's granted time in order for he and his friends to 
pray. Request compassion from God uh, to get on their knees and pray to figure out what this is that the king has seen. And God gives them the dream and its interpretation to Daniel in a night vision. And so Daniel tells Arioch. Arioch rushes Daniel in before Nebuchadnezzar. I found the guy. Remember, Arioch comes in and tells him that. So that brings us to Daniel chapter 26, which I'll just read a couple, chap- or a couple verses here. In Daniel 2.26, it says, The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. Daniel basically tells him right there, No, I can't. In fact, there isn't anyone on earth that can give you this information. If you remember back in verse 10, when the other wise men were responding to the king, they told him basically the same thing. It said the Chaldeans answered the king and said, this is, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. No, the answer is no. On this point, the wise men of Babylon and Daniel were in total agreement, but... Where the wise men failed, Daniel is going to succeed. And in verse 28, which was the cliffhanger I left you on last week, right? Daniel shows the only way that revealing the king's dream is possible. Verse 28, he says, However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. No, I cannot reveal your dream. No man can reveal your dream, but God can. And you need to know that if you're going to understand this dream, it's only because God has revealed it to you. From a human perspective, Daniel does something really dumb here. He passes up the perfect opportunity to promote himself before the king. I mean, he could have taken note of what his buddy Arioch, Arioch might not have been his buddy, but Arioch did, right? Arioch rushes in and says, I found the guy. Daniel could have sat there and said, yes, I can interpret your dream, but that's not what he does. He doesn't take any credit for this at all. All the credit belongs to God. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, he says. He makes sure that Nebuchadnezzar knows this is a different God from the Babylonian God. He, he, call, he refers to him as the God in heaven, and he reveals mysteries. Mysteries in the Bible being things that only God can reveal. Men can't reveal them. False gods certainly can't reveal them, because, of course, false gods don't exist. But God can reveal them simply because they're the mysteries of God. And this mystery that Nebuchadnezzar saw that was a part of his dream, has to do with the latter days, Daniel says here. This is the future. This is sometime down the road. The latter days usually refers to the times of the end. This is an eschatological term, an eschatological dream that the king had, and we'll see that as we make our way through it. So Daniel continues in verse 29. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. 
So in these two verses here, we get a little glimpse into both Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. We see actually two contrasting personalities between the two. First, we see something about the king. The king was on his bed when he had this dream, and he was thinking about what? He's laying there thinking about the future. As the king was going to bed, he was thinking about what was going to happen in the future. Most likely, he's, he's wondering about his own kingdom. He's wondering about his own legacy, about his own future glory. How great of a kingdom am I, am I going to have? You have to keep in mind, this was the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, right? He was relatively new at this. Nebuchadnezzar was a prideful man who was worried about himself. And when we get to chapter 4, we'll see that in even more detail. Daniel, on the other hand, we see something completely different about him. We see Daniel's humility. We see Nebuchadnezzar's pride. We Here we see Daniel's humility. He doesn't just give credit to God, which we saw already. He makes it perfectly clear that he has no part in this wisdom in any way. He's not revealing this dream. It's not by any wisdom that resides in him at all. It is all because of what God has given to him. So what is this dream that's so important, that was so disconcerting to the king of Babylon that he was willing to commit mass murder over this dream? Well, God reveals it through Daniel, starting in verse 21, where we first see the statue. You, O king, were, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. You, O king, were looking, he says. Okay, so while looking, what did the king see? Put yourselves in Nebuchadnezzar's shoes for just a minute. In this dream, standing before the king, there was a statue, a single statue standing in front of him. Not an idol, as some would classify it, but as will become clear in the coming verses, it was a representation of a man. It was a statue of a man. It was a great statue. It was a large statue. These, these terms have to do with its size. This was an enormous and immense statue. And we'll see that it compares to the size of a mountain, which is something that will come up later. The extraordinary splendor of the statue refers to its brilliance. It was shining brightly. It was, it was made out of various metals, which we'll come to see. So here is Nebuchadnezzar standing right in front of this enormous statue, standing like in front of a skyscraper. Don't just think of him you know, seeing this thing out in the distance. He's standing in front of this huge, enormous statue. And finally, Daniel says that its appearance was awesome. If you're a child of the 80s, then you think of that word and you think, oh, that means it was really cool. Well, that's not really what this word means. This word means terrifying. This statue was making Nebuchadnezzar shake in his boots. It scared him to death. He, you have to remember, he woke up from his dream and he couldn't get back to sleep after seeing all these events. In his dream, he had come face to face, so to speak, with his own insignificance. Compared to this statue, Nebuchadnezzar was nothing. Remember, he'd been laying on his bed thinking about the future, thinking about his own glory, and then he has this dream where he's standing in front of this huge, colossal, terrifying structure. He had to acknowledge the majesty of this thing as even bigger than himself. 
And so this, this statue terrifies him. And in the next two verses, we see the details of the statue. It says, The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. It was made out of different materials. And we start at the top and we work our way down to the bottom. And we see the four different levels, or we might actually say four and a half different levels, and we'll explain the half when we get there. So we have a statue that is is in the image of a man that was made out of these various metals. And at the very top of this massive statue, we have the head that is made out of gold, the most precious of the metals that we have listed. The next level down, we get the breast and the arms of this thing, and they are made out of silver. Still a valuable metal, but not quite as valuable as gold. Then we get to the abdomen and top of the legs, the thighs, which are made out of bronze. And as you can see, as we descend down this statue from top to bottom, the metals keep decreasing in value until we get to the lower legs and the feet, really from the knees down. The calves are made out of iron and the feet are a subset of that. They are a mixture of iron and clay. The clay here would be a baked clay, would be like a, like a pottery. This isn't soft clay molded around the iron. It's really more like ceramic which would keep with the brilliant appearance, the extraordinary splendor of the statue. And you get this polished iron mixed with the shiny ceramic substance as well. Now, this picture has always been difficult for me to take in when you, th- when you think of the feet, because in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, how does iron mix with clay? How do you mix iron and clay together? But really, that's the point. They don't mix You've got this hodgepodge of substances that really only serve to weaken the other elements. The iron isn't as strong because it has clay mixed in with it. The pottery isn't as beautiful because it's got these chunks of iron mixed in with it. And so really, we have to look at the legs and the feet together. The pure iron in the legs gives way to an iron that has this brittle substance mixed in with it as well. The iron is not as valuable as the bronze, and the mixture of iron and clay would be the least valuable of all. In fact, when we get to this point, we could say that the iron and clay mixture is practically worthless. So the value of the metals decreases from the head down. But not just the value, but the weight of the metals decreases as well. It's just some fun facts. You don't have to write these down if you don't want to, but gold is... 1,204 pounds per cubic foot. Silver is 653 pounds per cubic foot. Bronze, 509 pounds. Iron, 485 pounds. And iron and clay, I don't have the exact number, but it's less. It would be less than 485 pounds. So what does this mean? It means that this statue is top-heavy. This statue is unstable. Anyone knows that if you're going to erect a statue or any structure, you need to establish the firm foundation first. Make the base heavy, and then it gets lighter as you go up. But this enormous statue is the opposite of that. And in fact, the most unstable and the weakest element is what it's resting on at its feet. So in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, this is what is standing before him, this enormously brilliant, top-heavy statue of a man. But wait, there's more. 
In verse 34, we see that there is action that takes place, and we see the introduction of a stone. Verse 34, you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands. Here's this stone. It's not really defined except to say one thing. It was cut out without hands. It doesn't say where it came from. It doesn't say what it was cut out from. All it says is that it came into being without hands. This gives us a glimpse of what this stone represents because of its, its, its origin is not of human doing. It's not a man-made thing that's seen here, and Nebuchadnezzar would, would have realized this. It just came out of nowhere. He would have known that this stone had no earthly origin, no human creation. And what does this stone do? It says, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. So the stone comes in and strikes the feet, the weakest part of the statue. Now you have to imagine that this stone would have been fairly large in size as well. In fact, we'll see, at the, uh, see that at the end of the next verse. This wasn't a small rock that hit this enormous statue. This was a rock that rolls in or comes flying in. It really doesn't say which, but it, it, it struck the feet of the statue. And it has such force that the feet are crushed. Now... Again, statue's top-heavy and unstable anyway, and its feet being taken out from underneath it, what happens next? Verse 35, Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer, uh, summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. So again, Here's this big statue crashing to the ground, being smashed into pieces. In fact, the force of this impact, the effect of the stone hitting this statue is so violent that the statue is reduced to dust. I get the picture in my mind here of a building when it's being demolished, and I know there's more to it than this, but when you see a building get demolished and it falls and you just see the cloud of dust, that's, that's all you can see that's left. And I know that there's all kinds of rubble down there, so it's a little different. But that's the, that's the picture that I have in, mind, in my mind here. Rock comes in, hits the feet, it comes down, and all you see left is dust. But here, the pieces of gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the clay, they all, it says here, they all become like chaff. There's not even the huge chunks of rubble that would be left after a building collapses. In this case, all of those pieces in this instance become like chaff. And you understand the concept of chaff, right? Chaff was the holes or the husks of the, of the wheat that were left behind after it was rolled over by these heavy stones, after it was threshed. And you have the grains of wheat and their holes laying on the threshing floor, and you throw it up in the air, and the grains fall down, and the, the chaff just blows away in the wind. It's that blowing away in the wind that, that we get the picture of here. So that's the picture. The metals of the statue were completely gone. It says no trace of them was found. Now we have yet to actually see what all of this represents, but the situation is clear. Whatever the statue is, in the latter days, as Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, it will be gone. It will be completely destroyed by this stone and what it represents that's made without hand. But that's not quite the end of the dream. Look at the last part of verse 35. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. 
This stone was more than just a wrecking ball. It served a purpose well beyond the statue. It becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. It now becomes prominent on the earth. The size is massive, as most mountains are. The word for great is the same word used back in verse 31 when referring to the statue. Which is why I said before, I believe the stone and the statue were both of enormous size. But now the stone, which has become the mountain, has taken over for the statue. Where the statue was before, now the stone has replaced it, taken its place. And the whole earth is filled with it. It's all that remains on the earth. So it's quite a sight to behold. These large-scale objects, enormous in size, colliding with, um, with one another, one of them being destroyed, being completely decimated, and the other filling the earth, rising to permanent prominence on the earth. And all of this takes place right in front of the king of Babylon. He's standing right there as all of this takes place right in front of him in his dream. And it's a very disturbing sight to him. So now the king knows his dream. So now Daniel's just revealed to him, this is what you dreamed that night. This is what you dreamt. And it has been revealed to him. He's been reminded of it. And at the beginning of verse 6, you notice Daniel's confidence in having gotten this dream right. Because remember, Daniel's telling him all this based on his own dream, this vision that he's had. Right? He says in verse 36, to start off, this was the dream. It's not a question, it's a statement. He doesn't ask Nebuchadnezzar, did I get it right? He tells him, this was the dream. And Daniel knew that this was the dream because he knew that God had given it to him. And you notice that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't argue. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't say, yeah, that was it. Or he doesn't say, no, I'm not sure I remember that the same way. No, we just go on from here because this was the dream. So now they know the dream. The king knows it. Daniel knows it. Arioch knows it. Everybody that's, that's gathered there in the king's chamber knows what the dream was. But, and I'm sure everyone there was wondering the same thing, what does this mean? So what is it? Well, you notice the effectiveness of God's plan here. All eyes at this point in time are where? Fixed right on Daniel. Daniel's in this hall. We don't know how many people were there, but Daniel's the center of attention at this point in time. He was simply relating what the God of heaven, the revealer of mysteries, was wanting him to reveal, had given him to reveal. And so now Daniel was going to reveal it. All eyes were on God's messenger. Look at verse 36. He says, now we shall tell its interpretation before the king. Now Daniel is ready to give the interpretation that was received by God to Nebuchadnezzar about his own dream. Now, before we get into that, let me just point out that what we're going to see here are that there will be four kingdoms, four world powers that will have authority over the earth for a time. And they will have authority especially over the nation of Israel. Because keep in mind, that's really who is in view here as a contrast. One thing that each of these empires or kingdoms will have in common is that their dominion will include the land that was promised to the nation of Israel. They will all have that area under their control. All the way up until the time that Christ returns to earth to establish his kingdom. And that's where this is all going to take us. I'm sorry if I spoiled it for you, but I think you knew we were going there anyway. 
And so the first kingdom that we'll start with, kingdom that we'll start with here is in verse 37, where we look at the head of gold. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So what do we have here? The first of these four kingdoms is Babylon. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that he is the head of gold. Now, how does Nebuchadnezzar, being the head of gold, equate to the kingdom of Babylon? Is the head of gold the man Nebuchadnezzar, or is the head of gold the kingdom of Babylon? And the answer is yes. What do I mean by that? Well, to answer that, let's look at what Daniel says about Nebuchadnezzar here. First off, he tells him that he is the king of kings. Now, if you think about that, that's quite a title given to Nebuchadnezzar, especially when you consider that someone else will later be called that same thing. And who is that? Christ is called that. Jesus himself will be called the King of Kings. Paul makes mention of that title in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It will be written on Christ's robe and on his thigh when he returns to the earth. And that will become significant later on. But here, at this time, before God has established his kingdom upon the earth, this is a title given to Nebuchadnezzar. And it's given to him by God. This is the interpretation that God gave to Daniel. It's also used by God to refer to Nebuchadnezzar in Ezekiel 26, chapter 7. Now, how can Nebuchadnezzar be king of kings when Jesus is supposed to be king of kings? The answer has to do with God's plan and his timing upon the earth. Nebuchadnezzar was king of kings during this time, and that was the authority that was given to him by God, which we'll see in just a moment. But the day will come when Jesus will be king of kings, and there will be no more kings beside him. We're talking about who has rule and authority on earth, who God has given this authority to. So Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as the king of kings, but what else? Well, along with that, we see that this wasn't a mantle that he bestowed upon himself. There was precedence for this. It says, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. What was given to him? The kingdom, the power, strength, glory. In other words, God gave this to Nebuchadnezzar. It was his kingdom. The man was the kingdom. He was the absolute monarch over the kingdom of Babylon. But again, there's more. Look at verse 38. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. It goes even further. It goes beyond even Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was given absolute authority over the earth at this time. Now wait a minute. Now, he certainly was king. And he was a pretty powerful guy, but he didn't really rule to this extent, did he? Well, just because the borders of Babylon didn't encompass the entire globe doesn't mean that Nebuchadnezzar did not have this type of authority. Basically, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had the full authority of God behind him on the earth at this time. The point 
in this is not how much authority that Nebuchadnezzar actually wielded or took to himself, or even how far his empire reached. The point is, who was the one behind his authority? Who gave him that authority? It was God that gave him that authority. At this time, he was God's man in the world that he was using to accomplish his will. And therefore, Nebuchadnezzar had an all-encompassing authority on the earth. And we see this from time to time. Pharaoh was put in place by God as well. Doesn't mean that he was a godly man. Doesn't mean that Nebuchadnezzar was a godly man. But they were the men that God was using to accomplish his purposes on earth. So as we see, especially in this instance, the king was the kingdom. The king, as the one who, was, uh, who had absolute authority over the entire kingdom of Babylon, he was the head of gold, it says. So the head of gold was representative of Babylon. And gold was actually very appropriate for a reference to Babylon because the Babylonians were very fond of gold. They loved to build things out of gold. The ancient historians um, have found walls covered with it, and the temple treasures were all made out of gold. Some even say that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to build a golden throne in the middle of the city for himself to occupy. So gold and the kingdom of Babylon had a very close association with one another. So as a starting point for all this, the head of gold was Babylon, the current kingdom. They were the first kingdom that God established during the times of the Gentiles in order to accomplish his will, and that's what's represented here. Now look at verse 39. We move on to the next level of the statue. and Here we see the arms of silver. And there's quite a contrast between what we say about Babylon and what we say about the next one. And after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. That's it. That's all he has to say about the silver level. He took two verses to go over his description of Babylon, and now we barely get a sentence for the next one. All that Daniel reveals here is that, one, there will be another kingdom after Babylon, and two, that kingdom will be inferior to Babylon. And that's it. That's all he tells him. Now, we don't know why there isn't much to tell here. We could speculate. Um, you know, maybe Daniel, maybe God didn't want Nebuchadnezzar to go out and try to destroy every other nation because he didn't want the nation that was going to come after him to survive. But I don't think, I, I don't know what the reason is. But I don't think Daniel left anything out. I believe this, all, um, this is all that God wanted Daniel to relate to Nebuchadnezzar. And so, again... Um, what we have here is a very brief statement about this second kingdom, the kingdom characterized by silver. Well, who is this? What kingdom is this? This is the kingdom of Medo-Persia. And how do we know that? Because they were the ones that came after the Babylonians. They overthrew the Babylonian Empire. We will get into more details around this when we get to chapter 5, because in that chapter, we will see the night in which the Babylonian Empire comes in and overtakes them finally. So the Medo-Persian Empire comes after the Babylonian Empire, conquering them around 538 B.C. A few things that are interesting to note about this empire. One, the silver component of the statue. The Medo-Persian Empire was known for silver. The Aramaic word for silver is the same word used for money. Silver was the currency of the time. The Medo-Persians were known for their taxation of the people to finance their war efforts, and they had their national coffers filled with all kinds of silver. 
So the fact that they are represented by silver is appropriate and also serves to further identify them as this kingdom. Another thing that we have uh, that's interesting to note is that the Medo-Persian Empire was a divided empire. And it was two kingdoms working together. Now, um, it's just like the name implies, the Medes and the Persians. Well, if you think about it, how is this part of the statue represented? And there's questions on whether or not the, the, the form of the statue has anything to do with this, but I've, I find this interesting. It was a divided kingdom. It had two parts. Well, the form of the statue here is the arms in the upper body. So there are two arms, right? It, it encompasses the two arms would be encompassed here. So you would have the Medes and the Persians, right? Left arm, right arm, whichever one you want to put on either arm. So that could possibly be another representation or clue as to who this kingdom is. Along with the division of the kingdom, there is the fact that Daniel says this kingdom is inferior. Now, some question what this means. Some question, well, it can't be the Medes and the Persians because that was actually a larger empire. They were actually more powerful. But it wasn't inferior in size or power. The Medo-Persia actually covered more area than Babylon. But the inferiority here has to do with its organization and its makeup. It has to do with the fact that it was a divided kingdom and it lacked complete central authority. Nebuchadnezzar had absolute authority in his kingdom. He was the final authority. No one could question Nebuchadnezzar. The Medes and the Persians did not have the same type of control. They didn't, their leaders did not have the same type of absolute authority. And in fact, we'll see when we get to chapter 6 that Darius is frustrated by the very government that he had put in place. A group that was composed of the satraps and the commissioners that convinced him to make a rule, a law, that he himself is bound by and that he can't get himself out of. And you get the idea from, from learning about Nebuchadnezzar that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't going to allow anyone to trick him. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't going to allow anyone to tell him what he could and couldn't do and bind himself to any, any specific law. And as we go down through these empires, while there may be an, an increase in overall strength, there's going to be an overall decrease in the quality of control of these empires. Each kingdom, in turn, has more and more problems to deal with as a result of their worldwide expansions. And that's the same thing that we see with the metals. While the metals may get stronger as they go down, the quality and the value of the metals decreases. Well, let's move on to look at the third kingdom represented here. One that's represented by the belly of bronze. Then another third kingdom of bronze, which, was, uh, which will rule over all the earth. This was seen before as both the abdomen and the thighs of the statue made out of bronze. This was a harder substance than silver, but it was of inferior quality, and that comes into play here as well. The, this empire is the Greek empire, or Macedonian empire. The Medo-Persian empire existed for about another 200 years after they captured Babylon. And then around 330 B.C., that's when the Greeks came in and took over. It was around this time that Alexander the Great took over from his father, Philip of Macedon, and started his campaign to conquer the known world. The Medo-Persian Empire was a casualty of that campaign. And if you know the history of Alexander the Great, he accumulated 
an empire that stretched from Europe to, to Egypt to India, including all of Asia Minor, and of course the land of Israel fell within that realm as well. And he did all of this before he died at the age of 33. Some say that Alexander was so impressed with himself that he commanded people to call him the king of all the earth or the king of the four corners of the world, which actually fits with what God says about it here, saying that the kingdom will rule over all the earth. And it did rule over the entire known world at the time. After Alexander died, the Greek empire existed for roughly 200 years, remained in power for that duration, but after the fall of Alexander, it was divided up. Four of Alexander's generals divided his kingdom. We'll talk about that more when we get to chapter 8. It'll be a while from now, but we'll get there. But two of them were much stronger than the others, Ptolemy and Seleucus, and they ended up with the main divisions of the empire. Now, why, does, why is that important? Well, because here we have another part of the statue that gets divided. It starts with the abdomen and ends with the thighs. So the part of the statue starts unified, and then it ends up being divided. So it may be that that's another indicator pointing to the Greek empire and the way in which it existed. It became to be known by its division. Another thing to note about the Greek Empire was its close association with bronze. And what was this part of the statue made out of? Bronze. The Greek army was recognized during this time for its soldiers being covered in bronze armor, even wielding bronze swords, yet another indication that this is the kingdom that we're seeing here. And this is really remarkable stuff. Keep in mind, we look back at these things. Right? We look back from our standpoint and look back in history a couple thousand years to see these things and how they all relate. But all of these things here, as Daniel is relating this to Nebuchadnezzar, this was future. He had no idea who was going to, take, who was going to be involved in these things. This was God telling them what would take place in history before it happened. And now we get to look back over 2,000 years later and see how this all played out as it was prophesied. And of course, people look at these prophecies of Daniel and they say, oh, this was all phony. This was never written back when, it, when they say it was written. It was written much later because it had to have been written after all these things took place because it's too accurate. Well, guess what? God is accurate. God knows what he's talking about. This is amazing stuff here. This was God telling what would happen down the road in the 6th century BC. Well, this brings us to the fourth kingdom and we're just going to have time to start looking at this kingdom this morning. Um, and we'll have to continue on with it next time because there's quite a bit of detail here. Let's look at the legs of iron in verse 40. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron inasmuch as iron crushes and, crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks into, in pieces, it will crush and break all those in pieces. Here Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that this fourth kingdom will come in and shatter those before it. It will be characterized by iron, the hardest substance in existence at this time in world history. Nebuchadnezzar would have recognized it that way. Its strength will be unmatched. Its power will be unequaled. It will be an empire feared throughout the world. This was the Roman Empire. 
an empire that came out of nowhere, that before its sudden rise to power and influence around 100 BC had not really been previously known by anyone. They had not been seen as any type of serious threat until it was too late. The Roman Empire was the longest lasting empire of them all. The Western Roman Empire, headquartered in Rome, lasted around 600 years until almost 500 AD, while the Eastern Roman Empire, headquartered in Constantinople, remained until 1400 AD. By far the longest running empire. You notice the two portions of the empire that I just mentioned. Eastern and Western. The Roman Empire also existed in a divided state, at least in its later existence. And here, again, we have this characterized by the legs of the statue, two different trunks, two different parts to it. Of course, the other thing to note here is that it is characterized by iron. Just as the Greeks were known for using bronze in their armor, the Romans took the next step, and they used a harder substance as well for their armor and their weapons. They used iron in their weapons. But this verse indicates um, that the iron has even more significance than just that. This is referring to the strength of the empire. Look at the verbs used here. Crushes, shatters, breaks in pieces. All of these verbs are, character, are used to characterize the complete domination of the world by Rome. Their kingdom stretched farther than all the others. It had more power and dominion than all others. This kingdom commanded an army that was unparalleled in history. They were an empire characterized by the strength of iron, and that's the significance of the iron here with the fourth and final kingdom. Now, Rome is the final kingdom. Well, wait a minute. This is supposed to be a vision of the latter days, right? If it's the latter days, and the latter days are the days leading up to Christ and the return and his return on earth, then how can Rome be the fourth and final kingdom? Those are questions that many people have, but you know what? We're, we're not done with the prophecy yet, are we? We still have the feet to contend with, the iron mixed with clay. Where do they fit in? Well, we're going to have to wait until next week to go into them in detail leave you with another mini cliffhanger today. But I'll just lay out the basics for you now. The feet of this statue are a continuation of the legs in a little bit different form. In other words, this is going to be a continuation of the Roman Empire that the world has not yet seen. This is, a, this is commonly referred to as a revived Roman Empire. And this is why I made mention of the four and a half kingdoms of the dream, really because it's four kingdoms, but the fourth is going to be divided into two different parts, taking place at two different times. But Daniel treats these parts as the same kingdom or the same empire. To Daniel, he didn't have a problem with that. It was all still future to him, right? Everything, both parts of the empire, everything about the empire was just yet future. But when it comes to this empire or this portion of the Roman Empire, we are in the same boat today as Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar were because we're still looking ahead forward to this as well. We do know that it's coming. We'll talk about that more in our next lesson. But this is, again, this is, to me anyway, this is exciting stuff. I hope this is exciting stuff for you as well. It's not the... Um, 
only time that we'll see some of these things here in the book of Daniel. We'll visit this again when we get to chapter 7, and then in chapter 8 we'll, we'll see a portion of it again as well. And each time we'll get more and more information about what will take place in the latter days. From our point of view, it's interesting to see from the standpoint of what was prophesied and what, was already, um, what has already been fulfilled. And it's important for us to keep in mind um, as we get to the material that is yet future. God is going to fulfill his word. He will fulfill his prophecies just as he has in the past. We look at all the things that he said and that he's already fulfilled. And now we know that the part that hasn't been fulfilled yet, it's going to happen. It's going to come. That should be a tremendous comfort for us. And it should also color the way that we look at his word. As we come to Daniel, we need to keep in mind that there is no question that these things are as good as done. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and Lord, just we, we thank you for your plans. We thank you, Lord, that, that you have everything under control, that you have a plan for the entire history of the world. And we just praise you and thank you for that, Lord. As we, as we look at our little piece of history right now and we see things going on around us and, and Lord, we have concerns and we have uh, frustrations with things, Lord. We just, I just pray that we would be keeping in mind that we should be looking to you, that we should be understanding and, just, and relying on the fact, Lord, that, that you have everything under control and that there's nothing that happens outside of your control. We thank you so much for that. We thank you, Lord, that we, can, that we can rely on you for everything that happens in our lives. I thank you, Lord, for the book of Daniel. I thank you for the truth that is here. I thank you for our opportunity that we have to study it. And I just pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding into these things and help us to just take note of them and use them in our lives, Lord, in, in, as it comes to um, the reliance that we have on you and knowing what is going to happen in the future, Lord, and the confidence that that gives us to present the gospel to people, to, to know, Lord, that, that anyone that accepts uh, the fact that they're sinners, that, that accepts the truth of your son coming and dying on the cross for our sins and, and being raised again and, and just relying on that for our salvation, we just pray, Lord, that you would help us to... Uh, just convey that to others, Lord, so that they might be able to live with you for eternity as well. I thank you, Lord, so much for everything that you've given us. I thank you, Lord, for um, just all the blessings that we have in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with us as we, as we leave here this morning, as we go into the next hour, as we hear your word once again. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding there as well. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.